You're listening to Irish Radio Canada at Home and Abroad and we are focusing our attention this week on some of the movies that will be screened during the Irish Film Festival here in Ottawa this coming weekend and over available virtually over a number of days. And Patrick Murray is here with me, the Executive Director of the Irish Film Festival in Ottawa. And I've Garrod O'Halloran also here with me. Garrod is a native of the Banner County and County Clare and he is a wonderful Gwailgor and that means Tan Changibyo Ega. He has what we would refer to as the live language, the live tongue. It is still very much alive and, and spoken in many places. And he has also been involved in the direction of The Lost Children of the Carricks, which is a tragic story, a documentary that was put out for about a year ago or so, Garrod. Thanks a million for coming back. It's well, great to have you back. And I know we've talked about this before, but we want to bring people up to date and a little bit of the background on it. Margaret Austin, it's uh, lovely to be back again to uh, chat about uh, Canadian-Irish history and uh, the history, I suppose, of, of immigration and uh, displacement and exile, which, you know, is, is a, a theme that never seems to go out of date I think we're all very aware now of the tragedy that's unfolding in Ukraine as we speak. And, you know, it's another episode of tragic displacement refugees running for their lives, literally across Western Europe. I know that Ireland, as we speak, is opening its doors as well as other Western European countries. So, you know, the the exile and the diaspora and the tragedy of Irish famine in a sense, is, you know, speaking to us again in a different framework and in a different time as we as we speak. One of the interesting things you mentioned, be it the Ukrainian situation and the Irish situation, it used to be said that one of the unique aspects of Irish emigration was that an awful lot of Irish women emigrated alone and that that was somewhat unusual. And here you have a situation in the Ukraine where the Ukrainian women are being forced to emigrate alone because their husbands are having to stay behind and defend their country. So there are certain parallels that you identify there. But in the case of the Carrick, there's a very strong cabinet collection there and the family from Sligo area. That's right, Austin. Uh, this particular story uh, begins uh, during the height of the Great Famine in 1847, in March 1847, when uh, the Caveneys, uh, Irish-speaking uh, tenants of Lord Palmerston in South Sligo, are singled out for what historians, I suppose, simplistically describe as assisted immigration. It was a kind of an econometric scheme to clear unproductive tenants off landlords' estates in Ireland. And uh, they were the first consignment with several hundred other uh, tenants of Lord Palmerston. He sent out 13 ships to clear out his estates of unwanted tenants throughout the, I suppose, the high point of the Great Famine when landlords in Ireland are experiencing severe distress. And so, you know, it's uh, economic planning over human planning in a sense. And so the Cadenys are among the first batch to leave uh, from South Sligo. They make the journey to Sligo on foot, um, mother and father and five little girls and a teenage son. And eventually they board the Carricks of Whitehaven. Now, the Carricks of Whitehaven was the first of uh, Harmston's fleet of ships that would take his tenants to Canada with the promise that they would get new land. And of course, sadly, the, the, the promise of new land never materialized. It was a kind of a, a Faustian bargain, you know, at the worst of all possible times. And um, 
when they come within sight of uh, the gas bay, the Carricks encounters very severe difficulties. A savage winter storm or a late winter storm that uh, also sunk another ship on the same evening on the um, within the vicinity of uh, Les Îles de la Madeleine, the, the Madeleine Islands. So uh, at the end of this horrific storm, a small group of survivors straggle up onto the shore and eventually the mother and father of the Caveneys, Patrick and Sarah, uh, Sarah McDonough, she was in Ireland and she's buried uh, in, in Gas Bay as Sarah McDonald, which is not unusual. But uh, they, they eventually find their teenage son among the survivors. But the five little girls are gone. And so, you know, you can't imagine the, the extent of this family tragedy with scores of other bodies floating in and out on the tide uh, throughout the following day. And, uh, you know, this was, you know, the first of many disasters, you know, uh, that would follow throughout the course of uh, before and after the famine experience as people fled from Ireland. And um, that particular story remained intact. Remember, we're talking about an Irish, a Gaelic-speaking family from South Sligo arriving up onto the shores in the Gas Bay, in the New World, as we as we simplistically, simplistically call it in Ireland. Of course, it wasn't new at all. Um, but in any case, um, they, they would eventually uh, start a new life on the edge of the Gas Bay. Uh, Patrick would find new land. And uh, within six or seven years, Patrick decides he would go and celebrate St. Patrick's Day uh, with an Irish community in Douglastown. And to get there, he decides he would walk across the frozen Bay of Gaspé. And, of course, he never makes it. And several days after, uh, his body is found on the frozen ice. And now, here is a woman. You talked about women making their way across the Atlantic alone uh, or, you know, without husbands, with families, large and small. Here now is a, a young woman left with uh, three new kids and a teenage son. She's lost five little girls already. And now her husband is gone. And so she has to face the music, as we say, and face the crisis with no help. Uh, we're talking about a time where there's no welfare state, there's no widow's pension, there's no support, there's no you know, psychological backup, no social services. And she raises her family in the extreme edge of the gas bay, far away from urban centres. Obviously, she has people around her. And in time, they manage to survive, make a, make a new life. Uh, they transition from a, an Irish-speaking culture in the south of Sligo uh, to a Franco world, a, Fra- a French-speaking world in, in Gaspé. And five, six generations afterwards, this story is very successfully preserved. You know, this is not a story that's a, a kind of a random series of memories. This is a solid chain of intergenerational memory preserved, which is an extraordinary thing. You know, people all over North America and certainly in Canada or in Quebec and Ontario, you know, they, they have a notion that their people came during the Great Famine. Now, of course, we know that most Irish would have come to Canada before the famine. The, the, the big window of Irish immigration to 19th century Canada would have been the 1820s and 1830s. In other words, the, the generation after the Napoleonic War. So when people kind of vaguely 
latch on to the possibility that their people might be famine immigrants. Quite frequently, it's, I won't say it's speculative, but it's very, very difficult to prove. But what I found intriguing when I met Georges Cavanaugh in Gasway was here was a man that had knowledge of a story that was passed down directly from his grandfather, who knew Sarah MacDonald, who, who actually met and spent time and grew up in a family world where this tragedy was preserved over time. And so what we were able to do, in a sense, was to recreate the story for the film itself. We spent a lot of time in Gaspay going over what I would describe as the, the topography of the famine, you know, the, the site of the shipwreck, the monuments, uh, where these people settled, where they would have travelled to find land, what their neighbourhood was like, what the terms of survival as a community which was for part of the year a farming community and for the other part of the year a lumbering community and they would have scraped out a very sparse living from the river, you know, from, from the cod fishery. And um, eventually we were able, with the help of Georges Kavanagh, to put this extraordinary micro story, so to speak, together and, you know, I suppose the jewel in the crown, if I can use that expression, was bringing Patrick and Sarah's memory back to South Sligo and making the connection. Now, I have to say that historians in, in Sligo were, were very, very good. Another branch of Patrick's family had already made the connection with a, a Sligo historian who had put the final pieces of the puzzle together. But what was important from our point of view was not that this would uh, neglect the Francophone memory. It was important for us to reposition the importance of Francophone memory in the Irish famine story, but also the memory of Gaelic-speaking Ireland, making that a uh, transition from Gaelic to French. And so uh, Georges Cabernet, in a sense, brings that story home for us. And we were able to bring him back home. He met his cousins in Ireland, in, in Caish and South Sligo. He went and uh, stood literally on the site of Patrick and Sarah's home, that they were living in before they left Ireland. And, and there's an enormous sense of completing the circle. Here is memory and history, what I describe in the heartland of the ordinary. You know, these are humble people. They're anonymous people. They're not, they're not looking for fame and fortune. They're, they don't want to be celebrities. But, but there was an extraordinary emotional moment when Patrick stood at the fireside. And what we did... Uh, Austin, you know well from uh, your experience of growing up in the west of Ireland, uh, many immigrants left and the last thing they did before they left home was they brought their fire to the fire of a neighbour on the off chance that if they ever came back home again, they would reclaim their fire. So what we did was we lit the fire and Georges Cavanaugh brought the flame back home after so many years, after almost a century and a half. And so this, you know, in a sense, is a is a spiritual moment. And uh, there's one point in the film where George had spent his whole life researching the story and filling in the missing details. And he, he, he found himself at, I would say, at the end of an extraordinary spiritual journey, standing in the place where it all began. And that was history at its best. You know, this was the kind of memory that you don't read about in the story of big politicians or you don't hear about it in Parliament, you know. But this was Parliament Nanina, as we say, the Parliament of the people, which was really 
what the film was all about. So, Garrod, would you say then that because the geography that is involved, and by that I mean that you're in what is a unilingual French-speaking area, may have contributed to the preservation of that memory, whereas had this, that, as we know, there are many similar stories in English Canada that have ended up probably being diluted or just vaporized. Would that have had a bearing? Well, I, I think the important thing is, Austin, that um, there are certain kinds of people who are interested in preserving stories. There are certain kinds of people, you know, and Georges Cavanaugh is one of those people, you know, um, I, I remember saying to him at one point, Georges, vous êtes Québécois, vous êtes Irlandais? And, you know, the answer he gave me was, well, je suis Québécois d'origine Irlandaise. Uh, and, you know, he told this extraordinary story about when he was a kid going to school in, in Gaspé and they came to St. Patrick's Day and, you know, everybody was celebrating their their Irishness. But even before that, the very first day in school, the teacher sent around this little questionnaire and they had to fill out their name and their parents' name and, and their origin. And George wrote down on the form, Yolande. And the teacher was a bit disturbed about this. And she said, Mais Georges, vous êtes Québécois? Ben non, je suis Irlandais. And even at seven or eight years of age, he was so conscious of, of being part of this other story. And, and so he's lived so comfortably with this sense of awareness. But it takes a certain special type of individual to, to be able to accommodate, you know, this kind of um, what I would call this global citizenship, you know, uh, as opposed to, you know, we have a tendency, I suppose, as Irish people, and I, I say this, you know, knowing that I'm as guilty as any other Irish immigrant living in North America to see ourselves as the center of the universe, you know, and, and that's probably natural, you know, but I, I think we also have to um, stay aware, in a sense, of these other centers of gravity in terms of identity, because, you know, the the, the master narrative and the micro narrative kind of clash, you know. Um, sadly, I suppose as Europeans living in Canada, we frequently forget that there's a very, very important and sad to say often neglected master narrative in Canada that's, you know, 12,000 years older mm -hmm. than we are. You know, and, and we're part of, whether we like it or not, we're part of an imperial narrative that began 500 years ago. And, and so I think it's very important, I, I would say, as a historian, as a filmmaker, as any kind of um, a, a memory collector, that we're, we're conscious of the big lens and the small lens, the macro narrative and the micro narrative. And I think this, this is one of the great things uh, that I discovered. You know, it was a very humbling experience working with Georges Cavanaugh because he had this extraordinary facility and capacity to, you know, travel between the larger Canada and the Irish Canada and the larger Ireland and the, you know, the smaller South Sligo world of his ancestors. And I think that this really um, is an extraordinary gift. And I think we, we, we focus on that gift in the telling of the story of the lost children of the Carricks. Uh, and I certainly hope that, you know, people will walk away and, and feel some of that extraordinary generosity of, of citizenship and of, of what I would call, you know, almost socialism of sorts, you know, cultural socialism that, you know, comes out very, very loud and clear 
from the voice and the memory of Georges Kavanagh. And, um, you know, we're really looking forward to taking this to Ottawa and to being part of the Ottawa Irish Film Festival because, you know, we've been locked up for the last couple of years. The film uh, was was um, premiered just before COVID. Uh, we've done several online uh, festivals in the meantime, uh, both in the United States and in Canada. Um, the good news is next month we're finally taking it to Europe. The film has been selected to represent Ireland at the Ethnograph Film Festival in Paris, in France. And so we're very, very proud of that. Looking forward to meeting filmmakers from Africa, from Southeast Asia, from Europe. And uh, then in June, late June, we're going to take it home. We're going to bring the movie uh, back to South Sligo, where it all began. And uh, we're working with the, uh, the historians and the extended community in South Sligo. We're hoping to get the uh, Canadian Embassy in Ireland involved and I, I think that will complete the circle in terms of you know bringing a story that began 150 years ago back home uh, and, and certainly putting the voice, the francophone voice and memory of Georges Kavanagh and his extended family before the people of Ireland just to remind them that you know our story is not just a single story of you know English language memory or Irish language memory but there are French language memories as well that really make us interesting you know uh, and I think you could take that story even further to places like you know Argentina where you know you have Gaelic speakers who left Ireland during the famine and became Spanish speaking Argentine uh, Argentinians so I, I think you know this is a this is a small story about a very big picture Indeed. Carol, we're going to have to wrap it up. Uh, Patrick, what times uh, are we looking at for this one? Uh, this one will be uh, Saturday at uh, 2 p.m. at the Arts Court Theatre. And uh, it'll be, uh, like, Carol to be there and uh, to answer your questions and see this terrific film and learn all about this history, especially for both Ireland and Quebec and Canada at large. I think it's a really important film and it's really well done and uh, I'm excited to screen it for our audiences. And let's give them the coordinates uh, for getting tickets. For getting tickets, uh, go to uh, www.irishfilmfestivalottawa.ca. Thanks a million. I should, I should say as well, Austin, before we wrap up, there's a lot of great music in the film, uh, mm-hmm. particularly great Canadian music, uh, both in terms of the singing and the, the fiddling and that sense of, you know... Um, the celebration as well as the tragedy. Uh, and I think we've used the music. Uh, we're very, very delighted to have had the assistance of some extraordinary Canadian musicians like Pierre Schreier from, uh, from um, Susan Marie and Kate Bevan Baker and, you know, some of the Shano singers uh, who live here in North America. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is a music event as well. And you and I need to talk further, and we'll set a date to do that, to talk about you bringing Canadian music back to Clare. Uh, and we will be sharing, we'll need to share that, uh, either just uh, as it's go- about to happen or after it has happened. But we'll, we'll figure that one out. But I want to thank you guys for taking the time on this one. And again, you got the coordinates there from Patrick. And uh, certainly well worth taking the time to go and see this movie. Thanks a million, Garrod. Thanks, Patrick. Thank you.